The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Some of you know we've been looking at this wonderful set of teachings in the Buddhist tradition called the Ten Paramis. The word um, literally means to cross over, to cross the floods not so much the floods out there, but the floods within our own minds, the way we get swept away, caught up in our worries and our hopes and our fears over and over again. And so these are the basic, and I don't think anybody would ever argue about these basic wholesome qualities of the mind like generosity or wisdom or this, integrity around non-harming, patience, truthfulness, which we're starting to talk about, energy, resoluteness, equanimity, loving-kindness. Did I say patience? Patience. So I think that's about ten. But anyway, there are ten of them. And uh, so we're starting tonight uh, looking at this basic value. And they're really the same value, just different angles on the same value. So one way we can talk about our practice, you know, and again, it's not our Buddhist practice, although you may refer to it that way, but it's basically our practice being a commonsensical, wise human being. That's our practice, right? What does wisdom look like for a human being? You know, what is common sense? What does being grounded look like? Well, it looks like these ten things, all together, right, when they're happening together. And, and the interesting thing is if we develop any one of these qualities, you'll see the other nine. And in a way, there's only one enemy of these nine qualities. I mean, it's nice to think of, okay, the opposite of morality or not harming is, you know, justifying violence or justifying being mean or the opposite of generosity is stinginess. But the real enemy isn't so much stinginess, it's all the little and big ways we justify being distracted or being disconnected, being lost in thought, and all the different ways we get lost in thought. Because it's, it's only because of that disconnection, lost in thought, superficiality, distractedness, that we do all the things that later upon reflection we understand, oh, that was not helpful, that was not good, that was a cause for suffering for myself and others. shouldn't have done that. And this is what I've always liked about these teachings coming, out of, coming from the Buddha, is that they're essentially simple. That doesn't mean they're easy, but it's not... They're not hard because they're complicated. They're, they're hard because of our habit energy. It's really simple. Like all good things come from cultivating a very clear and honest connection with whatever's moving and sustaining that as much as we can moment by moment by moment. And all the so-called evilness and bad stuff and hatred and all of the injustices within our own heart 
and express outwardly in our society, in our culture. All of that stuff is just the natural fruit of, of human beings being disconnected, not interested, not having the value of being connected, being curious, and knowing the difference. You know, this is the real expression of our delusion is that some of the time for us, we're not even clear enough to know the difference between being superficial or being distracted or being disconnected and what it is to be connected and to be vulnerable or exposed or intimate. Right? That's what's really frightful. Like, I mean, who knows if this would really pan out. But if we did a survey of all human beings on the planet, I mean, a sizable number of people might say, yeah, I, I'm intimate with my experience. I'm completely present with what's going on. I'm connected. I'm mindful. But that doesn't mean people are actually mindful. It just means they have a story that they keep telling themselves that I'm present. Because honestly, there are a lot of the times we don't know the difference. And in fact, so much of our initial practice is just developing some intuition of what it is to be connected so that we can start to be sensitive to the pain of disconnection. Not knowing the pain of being disconnected or superficial or caught up in our obsessive you know, patterns, thinking patterns. Not knowing that is really the very definition of disconnection or of ignorance. Thinking that we're connected when we're actually lost in thought. I think I mentioned this a, a few months ago, but I'm forgetting now who said it, but one of our, one of the senior teachers in this tradition of Buddhism, the Theravada tradition, uh, his summation of like how one, how a wise person, an enlightened person, let's say, would characterize how it is, contemporary situation of our culture, of individuals in our culture. And this person said, lost in thought. Like that simple phrase, lost in thought, characterizes who and what we are almost all the time. We're literally, the mind is literally, our heart is literally lost in thought, meaning not actually connecting, not actually vulnerable, connecting, exposed, intimate, which means also not learning from life when we're not connected. How can we learn when we're not connected? Like if our task is to learn about, you know, snow, we actually have to connect. You, you might think we could learn a lot by going to Wikipedia or finding the books or talking to people. But that's learning about, you know, what people think about snow or what people say about snow or how snow could be. But the actual experience of snow, we have to touch it, we have to look at it, we have to listen, right? Smell, taste. We have to be close. And same with everything in life. 
So this next parami, this next beautiful quality of the mind, these in the tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, are considered the prerequisites for awakening. Right? So if, if you want to awaken, you need to get interested in these qualities, and maybe truthfulness will be yours. And it's interesting when we hear that word truthfulness, we generally we conceptualize it like, oh, I've got to tell the truth, or what is the truth? I've got to find the truth. And we imagine that the truth is some concept, like some story about, some true story about who I am, for example, or some true story about the metaphysical reality of this. But that's not how we use it in this practice. It's not about some metaphysical truth or some conceptual truth. It's much more ordinary. Last week, those of you who were here last week, I talked about connecting as the underlying principle of our awareness practice or this path of waking up, we call it. Right? It's all about understanding that this heart or this mind has this natural capacity. You don't have to do anything to have this capacity. It's built in to connect. And we also, of course, have the capacity to mistrust connecting or to value thinking or being lost in thought more than connecting. And it doesn't mean we don't connect. I mean, we often do have moments of connecting and then followed by many, many moments of thinking about that moment of connecting until we've actually lost the experience itself and our thought about the experience substitutes for the reality of the experience. You know, the idea of our partner or of our friend is not the same as a moment of being with the person, playing with the person, interacting with the person, arguing with the person, observing the person. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a Western teacher, one of the senior people, senior Western people in this tradition, he, as a young man, went to Sri Lanka born in Brooklyn, I think, or somewhere in New York City, and uh, went to Sri Lanka, ordained as a monk as a young man, and now he's, I think, in his early 80s, back living in the United States at a monastery in New Jersey. And uh, he's just really been an important influence in this tradition. And I'll read, uh, this chapter is about right speech, and obviously a lot having to do with truthfulness is about speech. But this, he's talking about something a little deeper. It's near the end of the chapter on right speech. He says, It is said that in the course of his long training for enlightenment over many lives, the bodhisattva, or the bodhisatta, can break all the moral precepts. So bodhisattva, or bodhisatta, two ways to pronounce the word, that's the somebody on the way to being a Buddha. So it's said, he's going to go on, he's going to say, that they can make mistakes, right? Which is good, because maybe we're going to be a Buddha someday and we're making mistakes. But the one mistake they never make, so once somebody has gotten on the path, has made the resolve to wake up for the benefit of all beings, right? They can make a lot of mistakes, including killing people, right? So in terms of Buddhist mythology or whatever you want to call it, and maybe literally the truth, who knows, 
there are many, 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 many lifetimes to develop the qualities to that would allow somebody to have that, to basically experience the mind without fear, without any greed, without any aversion, without any disconnection or distractedness, right? No delusion. But so in, in those course of many, 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 many lifetimes, and they talk about this in, in really grand terms, like an innumerable number of lifetimes, it's said in the tradition that the Buddha will make lots of mistakes, unskillful acts, but he'll never break the precept around truth, telling, speaking the truth. And the reason for this, you know, at least as a teaching point, is that like in terms of our speech, this commitment not to shade the truth, you know, it's very easy, like when we're kind of casually talking with our friends, to put a spin on what we're saying or to leave out some of the truth or, you know, it's just easy to do that. But because the whole path is about uh, seeing clearly, connecting with things as they are, it's like that commitment to that value of truthfulness gets really deeply ingrained that we wouldn't want to violate it even in superficial ways by telling a white lie or shading the truth or leaving something out because, <coughs> because through practice, that value in this inward honesty or truthfulness then it just like takes over the whole mind. So it, it just, we get really careful about our truth. I've done this a few times. I casually said something to somebody, like over the phone, I'm remembering something. This happened a while back. But then it didn't feel right. Like I, I just, I think it, it was even in terms of common ground, I was saying how many people were coming somebody from another Buddhist center, and we were just having a casual conversation, and I said something. And then I, I realized it was a little sloppy. So, I don't know, it was maybe a couple of days later, I sent the person an email. I said, you know, it didn't feel quite right what I said. I feel right. I feel more right saying this. So I said it. And it was kind of awkward and weird to do that, you know, and it didn't really matter, but it mattered in my mind, in my heart, right? Like, no, no. I want to live my life in alignment with this value of seeing things as they are. And if we can justify deception in any place, you know, telling ourselves white lies or letting ourselves spin a story, like we do this a lot in terms of we do something that maybe wasn't so skillful and then we rationalize it. We let the mind rationalize it. And on some level, we kind of know what we're doing but we don't value truth enough to sort of stand up in our own mind and say, wait a minute, this is actually what's going on. I totally did that. It wasn't the right thing to do now in hindsight. And I'm not going to pretend it was the right thing to do. I'll just feel whatever the consequences of acknowledging that it wasn't the right thing to do. I'm just willing to feel that. Or maybe even make amends, like say something to somebody if that's, feels healing or the right thing to do. So let me just read the last couple of sentences here in this paragraph. So Bhikkhu Bodhi 
Bhikkhu just means Buddhist monk, so his monastic name is Bodhi, which is the word for awake, similar to the word Buddha. He says, <coughs> truthful speech establishes a, a correspondence between our own inner being and the real nature of phenomena, allowing wisdom to rise up and fathom their real, uh, their real nature. Thus, more than an ethical precept, devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on rela- reality rather than illusion, on the truth grasped by wisdom rather than the fantasies woven by desire or our obsessive thinking, you could say. So this is a real sign for you. Like if you want a barometer, if this is one of the ten paramis you're going to take up and study and develop, it's your way into your practice, then the barometer will be just um, noticing where how often and how significantly your mind justifies manipulating the truth for yourself or for others. Just be really honest. And not as a way of judging yourself. It's Judging yourself is just, it's a kind of hatred, right? It's aversion. So that's not the way. You know, forgiveness and understanding is the way. So it's not about this commitment to truth. It isn't about setting yourself up to judge yourself. It's about, you know, we establish the value, we water it, we strengthen it, we reinforce it, so that when it's violated, there's like a a red flag rises up in our heart. Wait a minute. Is this what I want? Those of you who were here last week, you know, I was talking about patience this way, that and patience is related to, all of these are related to each other. So the Last parami we, parami we talked about was patience. That was in December, maybe late November and December. And then one of the aspects of patience is like slowing things down. Why? Because we care about this life. So instead of just rushing into the next situation, the next interaction, the next choice, we slow things down. Wait a minute. Because we realize it's easy to make mistakes. As a human being, what I say even what I think, certainly what I do, matters. Right? All of these intentional actions, even the intentional action of thinking, has consequences. I've learned this with my wife. If I let myself think some things about her, <clears throat> it affects the relationship. I mean, in obvious ways, I might end up blurting it out if I think it enough, even though I know I shouldn't say it out loud. But if I let myself think it enough, it will just come out. As soon as you know, I'm spaced out or I'm not paying enough attention, I'll say it because it has some momentum in my mind. So if it shouldn't be spoken out loud, it shouldn't be spoken within the mind either. Right? If it doesn't, you know, if it isn't worth saying out loud, why are we letting the mind say it internally? Now, we can't always stop ourselves, but we can pay attention to what's going on in the mind. Wait a minute, is that true? Is that really true, what my mind is saying right now? Do I know that to be certain? What's going on? Well, it just feels like some venting. Well, how does that feel? Does it feel useful? Does it feel liberating? 
or does it feel imprisoning or heavy? So that's what truth, this commitment to truthfulness looks like. All kinds of ways, right? There's not just one way to slow things down. And we're not slowing things down to get tight, although it might feel like we're getting tight. You know, when initially when we start to care about what's happening and care about seeing it clearly and being it more, more and more intimate, initially it does feel a little awkward because we're used to not knowing. It's a lot more convenient to not know, just to rush through life, rush through situations, relationships, and let, you know, what do they say? What do we say? Let things fall as they may, or, you know, just. And so when we slow things down and have more mindfulness, all of a sudden, everything seems more complicated because we're just more sensitive. And we're noticing all the different intentions, all the different habit energies that are activated in any situation. I want to be really good. I want to get what I want. I want this person to like me. I mean, all those things are overlapping dispositions or intentions. They're all there, right? In any moment, even right now. You know, to some degree... Just because we're social beings, we're trying to impress each other. In some degrees, we're trying to understand. And to some degree, we just want to get home in bed. And you know, and some of us really want to get it. And it's like all these different things are happening. So the more intimate we become, the more sensitive we become, it gets confusing. So it's not pleasant when we slow things down because of this commitment to truthfulness, to wanting to be intimate with the way it is. But it's the way, right? Because that movement into, it's like a humility. Like I know that I don't see clearly, so I'm going to slow things down. I'm going to pay more attention. I'm going to try to do one thing at a time. I'm going to try to pause before I speak. When I say something, I'm going to take a moment to notice what that felt like. Did that so that if it didn't feel good, I, I can correct it. Right? So these sort of pauses. And we're going to take the time to feel what the body feels like because the body often will, like if we say something or do something inappropriately, you know, we can check the body and the body's really tight. Well, why is the body tight? Oh, I just did that. You know, the body doesn't lie. The mind is shameless. The thinking mind I mean, we'll tell ourselves anything, like, especially, you know, the truth is most of the time we're stressed, right? And when we're stressed, it's that fight or flight syndrome. And we just want to survive, not just physically survive, psychologically, the sense of who I think I am, it wants to survive too. And we'll tell ourselves anything that makes ourselves feel good. If we're not thoughtful, if we're not willing to be grounded in the body because the body will reveal like oh we're really tight what's going on here and then that more honest more truthful oh yeah i'm afraid you know i'm afraid to feel what i'm feeling i'm afraid to see what just happened to feel the reverberation of what just happened i'm afraid to humbly acknowledge that i was the person who just did that or said that who felt that ah 
But it's, what is it? Better to be oblivious, like when we're greedy with somebody or really needy with somebody or really aggressive or inappropriate in some way with somebody. Is it actually, in terms of our own, forget about everybody else just for a moment, just in terms of our own actual well-being, is it better to be honestly, clearly aware of what just happened or oblivious? In the moment when we're stressed, it seems better to be oblivious. But actually, like this is another way of talking about karma, the imprint from having done what we just did, said what we just said, or thought what we just thought, or acted out what we just acted out, that imprint is already had its effect. You know, it's hit the heart, hit the mind, made its impression in the mind stream. So the only way to begin the healing process is to connect truthfully with what's there in the mind and body. And to choose a strategy of not being there, like we have a life, but I can't really be there because it's unpleasant. I mean, it's just absurd when you say it out loud that that's my strategy. Like, I just don't want to feel. So even in those transitions, like from being awake to going to sleep at night, it's like, I just don't want reality to creep in. So, you know, I'll get my pajamas on, but then I'll turn the TV on and fall asleep with the TV on or fall asleep with a book because I don't really want to feel what I'm feeling, the reverberation of the day or the reverberation of the life I've been living, right? So I want to go right from distraction to unconsciousness and we wake up and instead of having an authentic moment of going, Whoa, this is what it feels like to wake up, right? We, we want to like either go back to bed into a dream state so we don't have to have that moment of honest connection or we jump in to our worries and our obsessive planning or whatever we do when we first wake up. You know, me, my habit energy might be to turn the news on, right? Because it's important, <laughs> right? We have our stories. Even... Jumping up to do your meditation, especially if it's a concentration practice, like put my attention on the breath, can be a way of disconnecting, like not wanting to be real. It Having a body, having a mind is like this now. So not telling the mind what experience should be known, but letting whatever experience is arising, letting it show itself in the space of awareness. Oh, It's like this. Being awake, being a sensitive human being is like this now. Well, can that be okay? Is it actually healing and liberating to say yes to what's being felt, what's being seen, the way it is? Is that safe? Can that be trusted? Or is the truth that we should be running? There's that famous line, I'm assuming it's true, I actually checked on it once. It seems everywhere on the internet, so maybe it's actually true. But evidently, some journalist interviewed Albert Einstein before he died, and was he was asked, uh, "What's the most important unanswered question about the universe?" And supposedly, Albert Einstein said, "Is the universe a safe place?" That, that's a great answer, because it kind of. I mean, both. It's great because it, it's like related to physics. Obviously, that's 
what his you know profession was, but he was also a human being, also very interested in the sort of deeper question about like how to be a human being. You know, what does freedom, what if freedom is actually available for human beings? And it's so it's not just an important question in terms of you know physics, but it it has everything to do with as a human being is opening safe or is the best way through life to be you know to find the best distractions and to ride them as much as we possibly can until the moment of death what is the best most sane most functional useful approach to being a human being distraction or connection now i think i think it's fair to say that intellectually we know what the right answer is right like cuz it doesn't make sense to say no i mean when we actually look how we live i think the truth is distraction wins mostly like if we're really honest like what choices did we make today most of you know if we added up the moments distraction or connection distraction would probably win But if we, if it makes sense intellectually that no, if we're going to be, if we're going to have a life, be a human being, a sensitive, sentient being, it makes sense that we cultivate, we take advantage of this capacity we have to be intimate, to be right in the middle, to be sensitive, so that when we're cold, there's this knowing it's cold. When we're happy. There's that clear, intimate sense. Oh yeah, happiness is like this. When there's sadness, sadness is like this. We're not thinking that we can practice being disconnected without it being the basic habit of the mind. Right? We, if we practice being disconnected, we get really good at it. And so it just becomes the basic approach to any moment of existence. Oh yeah, I know what to do in this moment. Find something to disconnect with, right? I'll think about this. I'll do this. Have you ever seen yourself in front of one of your mobile devices or computers? And it's like, you know, it's like all the possible things. Like if you're just even a little reflective in those moments, you realize that what the mind is doing. It's like, what am I going to choose to absorb into right now? I could absorb into this, I could absorb into that, and all these different things. And the slight panic that sets in when like, we don't know or don't have too many options, of, like we actually have to be there with ourselves. It's interesting how scary that is, like no mobile devices, no music. I often tell people who are seem to be getting um, really into the practice to find a time, it'd be nice if it was once a week, where it's not about sitting and doing formal meditation, it's just sitting like on your couch or some chair and don't do anything. Don't try to focus your mind, don't try to meditate, just be there. Just be there. And notice what comes up. 
Notice how the mind wants to, in a sense, fill in the space. That that will give you a real sense of this, cultivating this value of truthfulness. Like, so what is it to be a human being with a mind that's conditioned like this mind is conditioned and a body that feels like this body feels? What is that experience now in this moment and then this moment and then this moment? Because we can you know, be inspired to connect in a moment, but can we be inspired to sustain that intimacy? Because that's when the real transforming power comes. Not just a moment of dropping in you know, with some degree of honesty, some degree of clarity, but to sustain it for moments at a time. And it doesn't even take that many moments before it's an altered state of reality. It's like not what we remember our life being. Because we're so familiar with the distracted version, you know, being absorbed into one of our you know, patterns. We don't actually know what it is to... People call it a mystical experience. It's literally life-changing. And it's not like something special has happened. Something ordinary has happened, right? The natural sensitivity of the mind, the natural, you could say, awareness of the mind, instead of, because of habit energy, absorbing into thoughts and getting lost, the mind doesn't lose its reflectiveness. So it sustains this knowing it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. It's not actively manipulating or controlling, or trying to get somewhere, or trying to impose or project something. If there are projections, it realizes that's just a projection, right? So if there's thinking going on, the mind recognizes that's just what that is, just a thought. Because a thought isn't much of anything, but getting identified with a thought is is. Uh, we don't we don't appreciate the implications. The only way you can appreciate the implications of getting lost in thought is to have a, a moments of clarity right before you get lost in a thought. Then you get a sense of what getting lost in thought is. But normally what happens is we're lost in a thought, it ceases, and then we're lost in another thought. And it might even be like, oh, I was just lost in a thought. Like that's the new thought we're lost in. We're identified with the idea that I was just lost in a thought. So we don't it's really hard to know what that is until we have some moments of simple presence. That's why we take up really simple projects like just being with an inhalation or just being with the experience of the body sitting in a non conceptual way. Those of you who were here last week, I said a moment not mediated by language. Now, there may be thoughts, but the thoughts aren't uh, coloring or distorting the experience. So it's just the experience of sitting without the concept, there's me who has a body who's sitting here, right? Or hearing without the concept of what we're hearing. Seeing without the concept of what we're seeing. Or not distorted by the concept of what we're seeing. You can do that right now. Like seeing's not generally the easiest sense uh, organ to to play with. But you know, there's a way right now. You could one way to practice is soften the gaze. You know, 
So you're not looking at anything in particular. And then you get a sense how you can, you can get to the place where it's just shape or color, but the mind isn't confused by the perception of you know the different concepts like cushion or Judy or Steve or you know all the because when the mind conceptualizes or perceives and gets caught by the perception, then I stop seeing because now my mind's like, oh, that's Steve there and that's Judy over there, and so I don't have to actually be in the simplicity of seeing the shape, the color, the form. So in the next, we'll, we'll talk about truthfulness and uh, go into truthfulness in terms of speech in the next few weeks, probably a total of four or five weeks, because it's, it's a great topic. But just in the beginning, don't worry so much about speech and get interested in that basic value like of wanting to connect, wanting, and not thinking you need, it. connecting requires an idea or conclusion about what's happening or who I am or what just happened because the truth is not conceptual, right? It's already here and now, the truth of this moment. We don't need to tell ourselves what's true about like the lived experience. It's, you see, it's much more about opening. It's much more about a humility of not needing to define it. It's the definition of it that is the absence of truth, right? Does that make sense? And so it's, but it's not going to be easy because it's not our habit. So more moments when you're more, that are more simple, when you're more relaxed, when you feel more safe, like your daily sitting time, or when you're walking, but not talking to, not needing to talk to anybody, you're just, just like, well, what is the truth of this moment? You know, and and just as a way, as a vehicle, then you know, well, there's the truth of the body, and there's the truth of the mind. They overlap, and they're very related. But there's just a way you can ask yourself, well, what's the truth of the body? The physicality of the body, or go through the five physical senses. What's the truth of seeing? Not my interpretation of what's being seen but what's the direct, immediate reality of being sensitive to sights, sensitive to sound, sensitive to touch? What's that? Or what's the direct experience of being sensitive to cognitive activity? So not what the cognitive activity is about, not the content, but that there is cognitive activity and it's being known. What's that? Because it's true, we're sensitive, the mind, the knowing mind or awareness is sensitive to cognitive activity. Otherwise, what would thoughts be if we weren't sensitive to them? Right? We have to be sensitive to them. But can we be sensitive to them as just an activity that's being known, a mental activity that's being known, without being seduced by the content of the thought or the image or the emotion? Well, there's, just that, there's just that feeling. I don't have to tell myself that sadness I could be intimate with the feeling without it being defined. Oh, it's just this feeling being known or this mental activity being known. Because 
right? Because of this value of wanting to be connected, wanting to be connected with the truth. So we need to reform the word truth because mostly, you know, when we hear that word truth, we think we're looking for the idea that's true and the ideas that aren't true anymore. And we want the right idea, right? And we then want to defend it. But in this way of talking about the truth, it's like everybody's truth is personal. I can't say, no, no, that's not your truth. And we don't have to share it with anybody. It's not about sharing the truth. It's about being connected and valuing that connection. It changes everything. It's like a a different allegiance or a different orientation. Are we in allegiance to our ideas, which we can share to some degree, or are we in allegiance to our direct experience? I'll just end with this um, um, passage from uh, Gahil Gibran. Some of you, <laughs> we've all been probably at enough weddings, and a lot of people use this. I think we might have even, Wynn and I might have used this in our wedding. But that quote of this uh, spiritual teacher uh, uh, describing marriage as uh, two trees that I forget exactly how he metaphorically describes it, like they're sharing something, but they stand apart, right? And that's that's true. Like uh, We find a lot of support in doing this practice together, but the practice we do is very personal but it's really great to do with other people. But the, we're opening, we're not opening to a shared thing. I mean, in a sense, the quality or the, uh, the process of opening is the same, but what we open to is different. Your bodily experience is not mine. Your cognitive experience is not mine. Your conditioning that you open to is not mine. We, we might be identical twins, but the subjective experience is not the same, I'm assuming. So this sense of truth as being something we share, well, the opening process we can share, and we can really talk about it together and really learn from each other quite a bit. But what we're opening to, the experience of the body and mind, is specific to that moment. The underlying principles of it, like not grasping, not getting attached, you know, how to be skillful with what we're opening to, that we share. But the actual experience is really uniquely unique to each particular being. And it's it's hard, actually. You know, with this path, it's it, there's a sense of of uh, going into the unknown territory, totally naked, alone, right? That means you're practicing well, because that's the truth. But you can then later have tea with your Dharma buddy, your friend who practices, and they can share that that's how it was for them too, right? And that's a nice connection to have. They did their practice alone too. They opened up, they were naked too. They were exposed too. They were in unknown territory too. 
but they had to do it themselves, and just like you had to do it yourself. So I'll leave it here, and like I said, we'll continue with this topic for a number of weeks. But any thoughts you have about this value of truthfulness or any response or questions you have from what I've said, and you can speak right into the mic. Remember, not like this, but point it right at your mouth if you have something to share or question. Who would like to be first? What comes to mind? Yeah, Steve. Thanks for the talk, Mark. Is it on? Can you hear me? Um, I had a really interesting experience with that noticing of a story I was telling myself. With the holidays, it's really interesting. Um, I'm still of that age, I suppose, where family wants to know, you know, what do you want for Christmas? Okay. Uh, I was just racking my brain. All of November and December, I couldn't think of anything that I really wanted or really needed. So I made some sort of weird list, like some work clothes or whatever. And then Christmas came by and I got a few nice things. And they were really nice. And then I noticed like about a week later, I was looking at a lot of nice things on the internet, like to buy when the truth the week before was that I didn't want anything. I didn't need anything. I had searched my mind, and I didn't know of anything that I really, really desired until then I tasted that, and then I wanted more. And then I somehow justified buying some of these things. <laughs> After I had gone through this whole thing, and the question right before... I was like, should I ask my wife? And I, I said, no. <laughs> I want this stuff. I don't want to ask her. And that was what I discovered later was like, that was the real truth was, if I had to ask myself the question, should I ask my wife? Then I don't need it. I shouldn't buy it. And like, this is ridiculous. But it's just been the reverberations of all of the purchasing and receiving and wanting have been really deep and like really distracting. And well, a lot of fruit for reflection, I suppose. So, yeah. and, and great to see. I mean, just the clarity that you could talk about it means you weren't completely caught. Because if we're completely caught, we can't articulate what was happening in the mind. So a lot of times we're partly caught, but we're also partly learning, right? And that learning leads to freedom. Thanks for sharing that, Steve. Who'd like to go next? What else have you been learning? Yeah, over here. I really liked it when you were talking about the slow life. <laughs> I was wondering, is that a kind of religious term, or is that something you just said today? Uh, the slowing down? I, yeah, you, you were talking about the slow life, the slow life of bringing truthfulness in and things like that. I was, because um, I actually um, have been kind of trying to put, put that more into practice in my life. And I find it kind of difficult 
with our you know media and computers and everything but i'm really it's easy for me when i'm in nature and so i'm trying to yeah. be more be more in that but i was just wondering if that was a religious or a spiritual term the slow life or is that something you just said i know well i think it's just common for people who've been practicing for a while that they see that because like just in my own life i see like the example that steve just gave that when i'm when the greed or the aversion is active and diluting my mind then there's also right there with it a sense of rushing like there's a, a feedback system when some unskillful pattern is active, like greed or aversion, which is don't slow down, don't take a good look right now, right? It's as if the mind knows that if I slow down and feel what I feel and look at what's going on, I won't stand for it because I'll see this is, not, this is going to hell, not to heaven. So why am I living this way, seeing this way, acting this way? So we rush. Oh, I don't have time to decide if I really want it, so I'm just going to do... It's such a... Well, I'll tell myself, like in that example that Steve gave, you know, where I'm sort of looking at nice stuff on the Internet, and uh, it's like um, the mind will rationalize it. Well, this is so hard to do. I don't have any time. I should just buy it because I have to go through all this time of dissecting what I should buy and the right size, and that's such a pain. It's just better to buy it, even if I don't need it. Right? I mean, it's like, so this rushing, this is how so much uh, suffering gets set in motion, is that we feel like we have to rush, mostly because everybody else is rushing. But they're rushing because we're rushing. You see, it's like, so I think it could be a, a basic spiritual principle, like slowing down. But how to do that without being tight about it? or self-righteous about it, or telling everybody else that they should slow down, right? Yeah, it's not, it's not my business what's going on in their life. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Anybody else? Yeah, Judy, please. Uh, Steve's story just reminds me, I've been, doing some reading, and one of the phrases that's just been really coming up over and over and I've been thinking about a lot is um, that something, I don't know exactly, but the, the idea that happiness is, is having non-remorse. Oh, wow. You know, so many things we think of, and, or at least th- so many things that I'm doing, and I'm, if I'm remorseful, all of a sudden this this teaching has made sense to me like, oh, it's really suffering to be remorseful. So, so much better if you actually paid attention before you did it. You wouldn't experience the suffering of remorse. It's yeah. it's just, you know, it's just one of those things where I probably heard it three times in the last three years, but it never made any impression. All of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, I get it. So I thought it's really. Yeah, and it's a great follow-up to what this person just said because it's the not wanting to feel the pain of remorse that keeps us rushing, right? Because if we slow down, I used to um, teach and work at a place in New York City called the Integral Yoga Institute back in the 80s, a meditation and yoga place right in the heart of Manhattan. And uh, it was a 
really great place to live. But it was, there was a lot going on, and I, I helped uh, administer the place and, and taught there. But in the middle of every day, they, we had a morning set, quite substantial amount of practice in the morning, and then we sat in the middle of the day and sat at night. And it was so great in the middle of the day, running around, doing all the things, and then at 11.30 or whatever it was, there was a half an hour set. And it was so great to have to put everything down. And basically, when you're sitting, it wasn't necessarily a deep set, but you felt everything that you had set in motion that morning. You know, all the reverberations, all the remorse for the conversations that weren't exactly skillful or whatever. So I really, besides your daily longer practice, as much as you can punctuate the day with two minutes here, 30 seconds over here, where you're just resting in the moment and feeling the reverberation of whatever you've just been doing and thinking and imagining, it really changes things. If we have to honestly feel what we're setting in motion, the remorse that Judy talked about, we, make, we start to live in a different way. But if we're constantly disconnected from the pain of remorse because we're keeping busy, well, we can keep being a jerk or unskillful for a long time. Uh, thanks, Judy. And why don't we leave it here? Just take a moment, let go of the words. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.